0: So, Father, we thank you that that's what you do. You make beautiful things. You make good things. And we thank you that you are making beautiful things with us. Lord God, we pray that you would speak your word into us and make us beautiful like yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Help us preach. Amen. I wore a what would Jesus do bracelet in a movie theater once to see if it worked. guy's cell phone went off, one of those obnoxious rings where it's a song and he doesn't want to answer it because the good part's coming. (laughs) I had my hands on his neck and then I saw my bracelet staring right back at me. What would Jesus do? So I lit him on fire and sent him to hell. I mean, there's, there's kind of a little bit of truth there maybe, but do, do you ever think to yourself, there's something wrong with the way we've been telling the story? I, you know, I grew up with a father. Well, I grew up loving God the Father because I had a father that loved me and loved God. and It made sense to me that the uh, word that the Father would speak, God the Father would speak, would shape us in His image. I grew up loving God the Father, and I loved Jesus, and I was happy to tell anyone about Jesus. Until I remember this, this one night in 11th grade, I think Gary, our youth pastor, forgot to prepare a message, and show, so he showed the film um, A Thief in the Night. It was about uh, supposedly the prophesied return of Jesus according to the revelation, and I remember afterwards praying, going, Jesus, what happened to you? I mean, it was clear to me in 11th grade that either Jesus, who is supposedly the same yesterday, today, and forever, either Jesus changed from being the very embodiment of sacrificial love to the most unforgiving, ruthless, kick-ass Messiah this world has ever seen. Or there was something seriously wrong with the way we were telling the story. I call myself an evangelical because that means good news giver. And as a young pastor, I was involved in all kinds of wonderful evangelism projects, but sometimes knocking on doors, I think we sounded kind of like this. You've seen this? Let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in? (laughs) But it, it was actually worse than that because we weren't Jesus, but we seem to think that we were Jesus, sent out to save people from Jesus, the the Savior. God is of self- it. That's what it means. God is of self- it. So in effect, what we'd say would sound something more like this: Let us in. Why? We have knowledge of good and evil. And if you take our knowledge of good and evil, you can use that knowledge of good and evil to make a choice, a a judgment, if you will, and save yourself from God's judgment, who is Jesus, who's coming back to kick your ass. (laughs) Good news, we're here to save you from Jesus, the, the Savior. Good news, God loves you unconditionally unless, of course, you don't believe that He loves you unconditionally, and then He will not love you unconditionally forever and ever and ever torment you endlessly. Good news, will save you from God. That's the gospel. Good news. I remember thinking something like, you know, either good news means basically bad news, or there's something seriously wrong here with the way that we're telling the story. As a young pastor, I I was taught to preach to a decision and I was also taught to preach from from Scripture, but as I began to preach through Scripture, I kept running into this this problem. The text usually did not preach to a decision. It was more like the text was a decision and all I could honestly do was, was preach it or like proclaim it as if the Word was a decision. And that decision was like a seed. You know, a seed carries the future in its own bosom. All you have to do is plant it in broken, dirty ground. We're a broken, dirty heart. At least in the New Testament, definitely in John, it was pretty clear that our decisions did not save us from the judgment of God. But more like the judgment of God saved us from our decisions. It became clear that something was really wrong with the way that we were telling the story. But I just kept preaching and preaching and preaching because I got paid. It's my job. I was paid to do that. I preached through the parables, through John, through Ephesians, through Genesis, First Peter, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, a bunch of texts from different parts of Scripture, and then the revelation. It took a year to get through the revelation, and, and I couldn't find that Jesus from the Thief in the Night movie or the one in the Left Behind series. I mean, I could see how you could casually read it and, and twist it in order to say that, but if you took Scripture seriously, we well, didn't twist it. it. It twisted you. It changed you. And the Revelation changed the way I viewed time and eternity. Changed the way I viewed Kronos and Kairos, the, the number seven evil, the consuming fire of God. And ironically, it matched what I was reading from physicists. It matched what I read in, like, Julian of Norwich and her revelations of divine love, the theology of guys like Karl Barth, and and what I encountered, usually around three in the morning, as my wife and I prayed for a friend of ours that was raised in a coven and we watched how Jesus delivered him from the most horrid evil you can imagine. It, It matched, it matched that. Jesus destroys the works of the evil one. And Jesus, Jesus was Jesus, and and Jesus doesn't change. But our perspective of Jesus changes. What we think is weak is strong. The last is first. The, The lion is the lamb, and the lamb is the lion. Love is absolutely kind, and at the very same time, a consuming fire. And God's judgment is always grace. I always thought that it was kind of like my duty to explain away the Bible verses that would lead people to, you know, abandon their responsibility and depend too much on God's grace or have too much faith in grace. But then we got to Revelation 21 verse 5, and I lost my ability to explain it away. And he who sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. It's finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so, I remember the sermon that week. I I got to that part and I said, well, I guess he makes everything that's anything new. You know, that's not really a threat. That's kind of like a promise. And, and that's pretty, pretty good news, pretty good news. I began to realize that there were scores of Bible verses like that, spattered throughout the Bible. Not threats, but promises, like, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. And with all my exegetical and hermeneutical skills, I did not know how to explain that verse away. And then I began to wonder, why do we want to explain that verse away? I called those verses the Bible verses banned by Bible-believing believers. (laughs) After the revelation, we preached through Matthew, partly because I knew Jesus said some pretty intense things about about hell. And I figured that maybe some of those verses might reveal that God doesn't actually make all things new. So we spent three years in Matthew. Matthew. We learned about the law and how Jesus fully fills the law, the narrow way, and how Jesus is the way. He's the judgment, Hades, Gehenna, the fire that fills the temple, and how it is finished and all power and authority belongs to Jesus. But I couldn't find one verse that nullified the Bible verses banned by bible believers. By now, our church had grown from less than a few hundred folks to a few thousand. We built a six-million-dollar building on the side of the road, and people concerned about, you know, paying mortgages and being respectable. And someone complained to my denomination, and one thing led to another, and they had an investigation. And they said to me, Stop saying that stuff! And I said, What stuff? And they said, You know this stuff. And I did know this stuff. It was the Bible versus banned by Bible-believing believers. <laughs> but but they couldn't say to me, stop saying the Bible versus banned by Bible-believing believers. So w- what they said was something about your the way you're telling the story doesn't sound quite right. It doesn't sound evangelical. So, being a coward, I thought, fine, great. I'll preach on Genesis. Because I preached on that years before, and people liked it. I was a geology major in college, so we talked about dinosaurs and days and crap like that, and people, people really liked it. And, and I thought, well, I'll preach it again now. But then when I went back to Genesis, everything was new. And I discovered what was wrong with the way we're telling the story, I think. And so I wanted to share that with you tonight. I was publicly tried and defrocked for these things, but... Honestly, it really wasn't because I'm brave. Turns out it really wasn't my choice. Turns out I'm not telling the story. Genesis 1, which George, uh, George Saras recited a little bit ago so beautifully, is really a remarkable story. Actually, it's the story. God speaks and the universe happens. His story, history, for the last three, four hundred years, scientists have said, "You're right, that's fiction. That story is fiction. Yet recently, they've said stuff like this. Well, okay, this is weird, but it appears that everything came from nothing, like ex nihilo, a big bang or something and this is weird time time is relative to light somehow and the Bible says God is light and this is weird but the meaning the meaning in an observer's head collapses the quantum state of subatomic particles particles of which all matter is 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 made you know in Greek meaning is logos and God speaks logos and the creation happens and this is weird, but, but all reality, the, the best we can explain it is like vibrations of meaning on superstrings that exist in like more than 10 dimensions of space and time. It's like all reality is the manifestation of words. This is weird, but all reality is like a story being told. So maybe Genesis chapter 1 is not fiction. Which means the very first thing wrong with the way that we're telling the story is we're not telling the story. God is. Over six days, God speaks creation into existence, and on the seventh day, everything, everything, everything is good. Everything. It is finished. On day six, God speaks, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and then he calls everything good. But are you good? Are you finished in the image of God? Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible creator. Are you just like him? Well, God spoke, and how could it not happen? That's a little bit of drama right there at the start of the Bible. That's a problem. John 1 says it this way. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So do you think you have made something without Him? Like a good work. Or how about a bad work, like sin? So you, did, you didn't make your good deeds without Him, and if He doesn't sin, then sin is not something that is made. First Corinthians 13 puts it this way, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, all things. So if you bear a thing, believe a thing, hope a thing, endure a thing, it's actually not you doing that thing, it's love in you doing that thing. God is love, and it appears that love does everything. So maybe part of why I couldn't look on soon is because it's like not there, I don't know. So if you do anything but love, like sin, you must be doing nothing that is done. What Karl Barth called the impossible possibility, what what Julian of Norwich saw in her famous village vision, that that sin is not something that, that is done. Well, listen, I'm just pointing out that God said, Let us make man in our image, not kind of in our image, and not some dudes in our image, and some like a gross distortion of our image. I'm saying God spoke a word, but just look at us. It appears that that word he spoke has returned void. I'm saying God told the story, but it appears to be fiction, and that is a problem. So most religious folks say, "Well, God told the story. <laughs> yeah, sure did. And now it's our job to tell the story." They say God told the story, and it happened, but then we screwed it up. Genesis 1 happened long ago, everything was good, they say. But then, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 messed it up. Uh, They say, everything was good, everything was good in that garden long ago. The only problem with that theory is God says one thing is not good in that garden long ago. He says it's not good that the Adam is alone. Think about that. Adam is alone with God, who is love, who is the good. Adam is alone, but because he doesn't know love or trust the word of love, who is the good, even even in in the flesh, he's, he's, he's alone. God says, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But how would Adam know that the word of God is good? Surely that's not good. Think about it. A talking evil snake and two naked people that don't have faith that the Word of God is good. That's not good. <laughs> and they are obviously not finished in the image of God who is good. And yet, at the end of chapter one, which is the end of day six, God saw that everything is very good. And on the seventh day, He says, It is finished. So the fall of Adam, which means humanity, by the way, right? The the fall of humanity, the fall of Adam, must happen on the sixth day of creation. And until Adam is finished and very good, it must not be the seventh day. Which means the world is not 15 billion years old. And the world is not 10,000 years old. According to Genesis, it's less than seven days old. And that is a story stranger than fiction, don't you think? Well, anyway, I preached Genesis 1 over again 10 years ago, but I had read a book by a Jewish physicist from MIT about 12 years ago. Uh, Gerald Schroeder is a physicist from MIT who now lives over in Israel, and, and he points out in his book that time is relative. And now this is important. Scientists don't consider that a theory anymore. They consider it a a measurable fact. Time is relative and therefore the age of the universe is entirely dependent on where you, the observer, are standing when you uh, observe it. So in the beginning, God is the observer and there's no place to stand. So Schroeder asked this brilliant but, but obvious question. If the universe is about 15 billion years old from the standpoint of the earth, How old is it from the standpoint of creation? Well, at creation, there are no points on which to stand, no space, no no time. So Schroeder calculates from the standpoint of the background radiation. That's the moment in the beginning in which matter forms and light is first emitted into the the void. He calculates that if the universe is about 15 billion years old from the standpoint of the earth, then it's a little less than seven days old from the standpoint of the background radiation, the standpoint of the Big Bang. Listen closely. This means that the world is literally, actually, concretely, and most truthfully about six days old. Recently, I met a physics professor in an ASA meeting in, in Golden from the University of Colorado. And I remember afterwards, he grabbed me and said, Peter, Schroeder's right! He's right! He's right! He got it right! Well, whether or not Schroeder got it right, it's what the Bible said all along. John 5, verse 17, Jesus, who is the truth by the way, okay, Jesus said this, my Father is working still. The verb means he's been working from the very start, he's been working, he's working until now, and I, the Word, am working. That means that since the beginning of time, the Creator has not stopped working until at least the moment that Jesus spoke those words. But on the seventh day, He rests from all His labor because everything is good and it is finished. So, if the world is not finished and not entirely good, and you are not finished and not entirely good, then it must still be the sixth day. And you must still be being created in the image of God. And God must still be telling the story of your creation. Which means the thing that's wrong with the way we're telling the story is we're not telling the story. And secondly, we're actually part of the story that's being told. And so your situation is exactly like this. About a man named Harold Crick. Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day. Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? Mm-mm. Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being fine? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone! So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Get bent, tax man! Everyone hates me. Well, that sounds like a comedy. (gasps) That's the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Hopefully you saw it. But Harold Crick is the main character. He's a tax collector. He goes about life like one of the walking dead. He goes about life seemingly in control until one day he hears a narrator narrating his story. But until then, Harold's life really had not been a story. It had been uh, just a set of facts, but now the narrator begins to narrate and give meaning to all the facts, turning them into a a story. Harold goes and sees a psychologist. The psychologist doesn't know what to do with him. So she sends him to a literary professor, and together they try to discern what kind of story is it that Harold is in. They desperately want to know the plot. If you know something is a story, you see, then then you know that everything happens in the story, uh, has its meaning because of the plot, and the author wouldn't have included it if uh, he didn't want it in the story. The logic which connects events in in a story, giving each its meaning, is called the plot. Once you know the plot, well, it changes the meaning of every moment, every event in in the story. When I read The Lord of the Rings, junior high, I remember I came to a page on which uh, the good wizard Gandalf. I tried to stop an evil Balrog from hell as I crossed the bridge over Khazad-dûm, but instead the evil Balrog whipped up his whip and wrapped it on Gandalf's leg and pulled them both down into the abyss, and I just wanted to throw the book down in disgust and quit reading. But I didn't. Because uh, someone told me that the author was good, and so his plot was good. I had a mustard seed of faith in the author and his plot, and so I kept reading. When I saw the movie in the theater years later and we watched as Gandalf fell with the Balrog down into hell, no one left the room or even cried out in agony or despair. Why? Because we knew the story, and we had perfect faith in the plot. So instead of cowering in fear, what did we do? We leaned forward in faith, hope, and love. love. for the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, and love for his plot. Gandalf the Grey would now become Gandalf the White. We didn't cower in fear. We leaned forward in faith, because we trusted the plot. Faith means trust, That's, that's what it means. Well, Harold Crick begins to lean forward. Instead of constantly analyzing his life, he begins to live his life. The the narrator narrates him from counting notes to playing music. The narrator narrates him from auditing tax laws uh, to living a love story. But at one point, Harold hears this. Little did he know that events had been set in motion that would lead to his imminent death. What? I think we're all a bit like Harold, right? We know that the end is coming. We suspect that our life may be more than a random set of experiences, but that that it might be part of a story, and each experience might have some meaning. uh, That in fact, we are part of a story that's being told, because obviously, we didn't begin the story, you didn't choose to be born. And it doesn't look like you're really going to be able, with much success, to choose the end of the story. And and I'm telling you, um, controlling the plot, well, that is one hell of a job that I have failed at. so if someone else is writing our story, we'd like to know who's writing the story. What kind of story is it? Are we the protagonist, the antagonist? Maybe just an extra, extra. what's the plot? And can we pick a different story? Can we write ourselves out of this story? We don't have a literary expert, but, but we do have a fascinating piece of literature, Genesis chapter one. In, in Genesis chapter one, God speaks his word. Sorry, my shirt's rubbing on that. I'll fix it. God speaks his word. It's okay. God, God speaks his word. In Genesis chapter 1, I think i got to push this thing down in there, Ben. There you go. If it keeps going, you can come rescue me, okay? This is a good place to pause. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks His Word and reality happens, days 1 through 5. He speaks and reality happens. On the sixth day, The sixth day, by the way, is the first day to carry the definite article in the Hebrew. That that means the other days maybe kind of bleed into each other. But the sixth day, we don't know much about those other days, but we know about the sixth day. On the sixth day, God says this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31, and God saw everything, everything that he had made. And look, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, singular, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So the Bible refers to six days as one day. In verse 4, it referred to 12 hours as one day. These are obviously not our normal sorts of of days. And since God is still creating, the six days must encompass at least all of time up up until now, like we've been discussing. And yet, from the standpoint of the Big Bang, those six days are six literal 24-hour periods. So you see, if if we pay attention to physicists like Gerald Schroeder and we take the Bible seriously, then the history of all time, beginning to end, looks something like this. All of time, beginning until now. You see, Genesis 1 is the history of all time. According to scientists and the Bible, there is a beginning. And according to the Bible, there is an end, at least to chronological time. Revelation 10.6, at the seventh seal, seventh thunder, and just before the seventh trumpet, an angel that looks like Jesus stands on the land and the sweet sea and in the greek this is literally what it says he swears that time will be no more chronos will be no more chronological time is the time that we experience in this world it's linear time it's the time we experience in this age or eon that is ion in greek but the bible talks about another age in which time seems to be experienced differently, sometimes called the age to come, but it's God's age. God is light, and at the speed of light, according to physicists, all time is perfectly present in an endless now, or a now that is the end. Ionios is a Greek adjective that basically means of the age, and and it's used to speak of God's age beyond our ages. It does not mean endless chronological time. Because time comes to an end. And what is the end? Jesus told us, I am the end. I'm the end. Do you see that, what, it, what that means? That means if you arrive someplace and it's not Jesus, you're not at the end. That's good news. The end, telos in Greek, the, the perfection. St. Paul referred to Christ as the end of the aeons, the end of the ages, the end of the eons. You, you may also remember that Jesus was crucified on a tree in a garden on the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week at the sixth hour of the day and from the cross he cried, tetelestai, from telos, it means it is finished. What's finished? Well, Jesus is the word of God through whom all things are created. Sounds like... Creation is finished. Sounds like Nate is finished. Sounds like you are finished. The Bible talks, like Jesus, death and resurrection is the end of time as we know it, and the beginning of Ionios, or eternal life. Ionios, the life of the seventh day, which is God's promised rest, the the Sabbath rest that we are long to enter. You may also remember that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday, the first day of the next week, like the end is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning and the end. It's also important to note that Sunday is the eighth day from the first day, which for the Jews symbolized like an endless seventh day, the Shemini Atzerat. Perhaps there is no end to the seventh day because the seventh day is filled with the end. And according to Scripture, the end is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the same yesterday, today, and for, for all the ions, all the, the evers, according to the book of Hebrews. Zechariah, in verse 14, he prophesies that there shall be one unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, a, a different kind of day. Genesis says, it doesn't mention anything about a morning or an evening on the seventh day, and God calls it holy. You know what that means? It means different, unique, bizarre, weird. It's eternal. Paul says that in the end, God will be all in all. Everything will be filled with God, and God is I am that I am. Perfect beingness. He's not trapped in time. He created time. See, God will be all in all, and in that day, I don't think we'll be slaves to time. But time will be like a slave to us. That's almost impossible to imagine. And yeah, you try to imagine, that's why you went to Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3, right? (laughs) It's almost impossible to imagine. But for now, I just wanna point out that the seventh day is not stuck on the timeline. It's more like the seventh day surrounds the timeline. Almost like in God we live and move and have our being. Almost like the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. Almost like we're already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection is like the door, like a door, imagine that, to the seventh day. It's, It's the revelation of the word of God, which is the will of God which is the judgment of God, on the cross, it is finished. Creation is finished. Humanity is finished. It's the end of time, the beginning of the edge of an eternally new creation. So the apocalypse, it happened 2,000 years ago. The way we measure time. And the apocalypse is now in the sixth day when you believe. The cross is the boundary between time and eternity. The cross is the end of time, invading our time with eternity. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. A believer is someone that does it now. So a believer doesn't fear the end. A believer is already surrendered to the end. who is the beginning. A believer doesn't fear the judgment of God. A believer delights in the judgment of God. And a believer doesn't only wait for eternal life. A believer already has eternal life in them right now somehow. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes something amazing. He writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Remember, that's what God says he's going to do with us, create an image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then he says, firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. Did you get that? It means that no one was fully created in the image of God until Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And it probably means that all of us are like kind of trapped by death right now until we die with Christ and rise with Christ, until we die to death and surrender to life eternal life. In all of his writings, Paul talks as if this world of space and time were like a womb from which we are all being born. And Jesus the Christ, our big brother, was the firstborn. He's the head. And we are the body. And this is the plan for the fullness of time, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, to anakephalia. It means to unite together under one wounded head all things in Him, all things in Christ Jesus. You know, I've seen birth happens four times. Four times now, I've watched it. It's, it's traumatic. So if you're hurting, you're in pain, you're feeling labor. Don't. That's the way it is. But 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 every time. Once the head was born, the body soon followed. Even now, Jesus, the head, breathes the breath. You know that means spirit eternal Spirit. Even now, He breathes the breath of the new creation and sends that Spirit to His body in the womb through His blood. The Spirit is life, and the life is in the blood. Jesus is the eschatos, Adam, the finished man, the image of God, and we are included in His life, for we are literally, actually, concretely, His body. We are His body and His bride, For even though we took his life, he gave his life on a tree, in a garden called Calvary. Jesus means God is salvation. Well, I know that I just said way more than we can comprehend, but I'm just hoping that maybe we could catch a glimpse and dare to believe that God said, let us make man in our own image and he's going to do it, because in reality, he's already done it, and everything is good. So back to Harold Crick and our question, who's the author? What kind of story is being told? Who's the protagonist, the antagonist? What is the plot, and can we reject the plot and write ourselves out of the story? What kind of story is this? Well, If we're living in the sixth day of creation, we're living in a creation story. I I am that I am, Yahweh, the ground of all being, is the author, and the author has written himself into his very same story. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I am is the protagonist. I am not the void, the abyss is the antagonist. Light is the protagonist. The absence of light, darkness, is the antagonist. Life is the protagonist. Death is the antagonist. Truth is the protagonist, and a lie is the antagonist. The way is the protagonist, and lostness, Apollyon, is the antagonist. Reality is the protagonist, and illusion is the antagonist. Good is the protagonist, and evil. Is our enemy. Sin is choosing evil, that which is not. And there are no extras. Antagonist, protagonist, and there are no extras that don't matter to the plot. For I am, speaks his word from the throne, saying, Behold, I make all things new. So everything that's anything will be made new. Death will be filled with what? Life. Darkness will be filled with what? Light. God is light. He's going to fill all things. Lies will be filled with truth. Lostness will be filled with the way. I am not will be filled with I am. That means all sin will be flooded with grace. And God is grace. So you see, maybe salvation is so incredibly simple. It's just being at peace with your own creation. Salvation is faith. In grace. If you are created by God from nothing, then everything is grace. So unless you have faith in grace, you will hate all creation, and especially yourself, your new self. For you are created entirely by grace, even your faith. Well, we live in a creation story, and it's a good story. Evangelion, from which we get the word evangelical, means good news. Jesus said God alone is good. So the good speaks His good word and good things happen. Perhaps we have to encounter the not good in order to choose the good in freedom. Perhaps we have to encounter I am not in order to choose I am in freedom. Perhaps we have to encounter not love in order to love love in freedom. For a time, that that may look like a tragedy or a comedy, even a documentary, but it's all part of a love story that is the gospel of your creation. Scripture reveals that God is love, which means all reality is a love story. He's love and He's telling the story. In a love story, think about this, in a love story, the lover creates a choice in his or her beloved. The beloved chooses to love because he or she has been loved. But the beloved is not proud of their choice to love because they didn't create the choice to love. It was created in them by the one who loved first. They're not proud, they're grateful. And they live to the glory of the one who loved first. So we're living in a love story. God is love. We're the beloved father, bride, um, uh, bride, uh, no, father, children, um, sorry, um, groom, bride, spirit, filling his temple. We're living in a love story that is a good story. And think about it. All stories are creation stories. The author creates a world with his imagination. That's what a story is, right? The author creates a world with his imagination, and then he uses that world to create something in you. That something in you is faith in his plot. That's why no one rented the theater when Gandalf and the Balrog fell into hell because we had faith in the author and his plot. So what's the plot? to the story that is reality. Well, We already have a a summary of the whole story in Genesis 1. Beginning to end. God speaks His word into the void and His word does not return void but accomplishes that for which it was sent, which is to make man in the image of God and everything good. That's, That's the plot. You know what occurred to me one day? That every one of the Bible verses banned by bible believers, was a summary of the plot. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I have sworn to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. This is the plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is within them saying, saying, uh, to him who sits on the throne and under the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and praise and might forever and ever and ever. Amen. They're all a summary of the plot. And I wondered, do we hate the plot? In Stranger Than Fiction, once Harold hears of his impending death, he tries to hide from the plot. He tries to become somebody else. But if the story is reality, where are you going to hide? And who else could you become? Well, you could become a false someone, like a, like a false self, like Paul writes about in Ephesians 4. A, a false self is a self that you have constructed based on a lie that you could like take knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make choices to create yourself in the image of God. It's the lie that you are your own creator, your own judge, your own redeemer, and your own savior. A false self is a, a proud ego. Well, Harold tries to hide from the plot, but where's he gonna hide from the plot. Even if he made his bed in Sheol, the plot would find him, it would find him. In Scripture, people hide from the judgment of God, like like in the book of Job, you know where they hide? In Hades, Sheol in Hebrew. Hades-Sheol is in the depths of the earth, and, and Hades-Sheol is in space and time, but in the end, the earth will be filled with the glory of God, all space will be filled with the glory of God, and time will be no more. Well, Harold tries to save his life from the plot. He hides in his apartment, like the dead hide in the depths of this earth, but this earth is condemned. That means it's damned. The place we hide is God-damned by the plot. Don't do anything tomorrow. Nothing? Nothing. Stay home. Don't answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't brush your teeth. What about work? Call them tonight. Tell them you're not coming. Don't go to work? Don't do anything that may move the plot forward. Instead, let's see if the plot finds you. My name's on the goddamn buzzer! Harold Crick, apartment 2B, 1893, McCarthy? you say 1893? Yes! Oh. Whoops. I'm not exactly sure it was plot. I was hoping you'd say it was just a really bad coincidence. Meeting an insurance agent the day your policy runs out is coincidence. Getting a letter from the emperor saying that he's visiting is plot. Having your apartment eaten by a wrecking ball is something else entirely Harold you don't control your fate I know so Harold can't control his fate but maybe he can agree with his fate the plot it turns out that Harold finds the author and begs her not to kill him by finishing the story But an assistant overhears the conversation and allows Harold to read the rest of the story, which lacks a period, which explains why Harold is still alive. It is not finished. Harold reads his story and discovers that he loses his life in order to save a little boy. And Harold finds the story so good, so beautiful, so inspiring, so passionate, so true, and so right that he begs the author to finish the story for he knows that he couldn't write a better story than the one that has been written. In other words, he chooses to lose his life for the plot. He chooses to die with the plot. The author then comments, well, a man who dies willingly, isn't that the sort of man you'd like to keep alive? So Harold chooses to die with the plot, but the author raises the plot and rewrites the story, and that's the plot. Harold chooses to lose his life for the sake of love, the plot, and then he finds it, his life, his true life, his meaningful life. By the end of the movie, Harold has been made in the image of love, and and now he is a herald of love, (laughs) a preacher of the gospel, the good news, the plot. Well, God never rewrote the plot. It was His plan from the foundation of the world. You will die with Christ and you will rise with Christ in the image of God. I know this may all seem incredibly complicated, but it's really profoundly simple. God is love, and He is making us in His image. He makes us in His image with His Word, who is the plot. We all write ourselves out of the story. But at the cross, he writes us back into his story. And that's the plot. I hope you realize that every time you sin, that is, every time you choose to not love, you crucify the plot. And every time you do love, that is the plot rising from the dead within you, bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring all things in you. I hope you realize that Jesus is the plot. He's the beginning and the end. He's the meaning of every event in your story. He's the author's logic, which connects all the facts and makes a story. He's the manifestation of the author's judgment at every point in space and time. He is the judgment of God, the decision of God, the will of God, the word of God. The name Jesus, Yahshua. Yeshua means Yahweh is my helper. That's what Adam didn't know in the garden. Yahweh! is salvation. God is salvation. Jesus is the Word of God, the truth. But in the garden, Satan, who is the manifestation of the lie, deceived the woman who is us and said, hey, you cannot trust that the Word of God is good. But if you take knowledge of the good, well, you could use the good to make yourself in the image of the good. You know, if, if, if you don't trust that the plot to a story in a book is good, you can cut up the book and rearrange the words and construct a new plot. We didn't trust that the plot to the story of our own creation was good, so we cut him up and took the knowledge of the good. We cut him up and took the life of the good on a tree in a garden on Mount Calvary. We hated the plot, hijacked the plot, and made ourselves the plot, seemingly aware, unaware, unaware of, of the fact that our very existence depends on the author and the plot. We don't trust God as salvation because we believe that we are salvation. And so we write ourselves out of the story and into nowhere and in nothingness where men weep and gnash their teeth. We create false selves that don't delight in the truth, but are actually burned by the truth. And this is the truth. God is salvation. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where we took the knowledge of the good, God gives knowledge of the good. Where we took the life of the good, God gives the life of the good. Where we did our worst, God revealed His very best. We crucified the plot, and the plot rose from the dead, and that's the plot. We wrote ourselves out of the story, and God wrote us back into the story, and that's the story the gospel. God is making us in His image with His Word, and even if we crucify the Word, the Word will rise from the dead, conquer our hearts, and make us in the image of God. Because nothing is more beautiful, or powerful, or real, or permanent, or true than the Word of God, our Lord Jesus the Christ. Crucified and risen from the dead, God's choice. So the plot is not, I am salvation, but I am is salvation. The plot is not we are salvation or the church is salvation or the pastor's new program is salvation or your supposedly free will is salvation. The plot is God is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus, God's choice. So, so, so we're not saved from God by our decisions. We're saved from our decisions by God. We're not saved from God's judgment by our judgment. We're saved from our judgment by God's judgment. We're not tested so that God can see what we will do. We're tested in order that we would see what God has already done from the foundation of the world. God doesn't judge us to find out if we're righteous. God makes us righteous with his judgment. The cross is not what God needs in order to love us. It's what we need in order to love God. God's grace does not depend upon our faith. Our faith depends upon the revelation of God's grace, the gospel. So you see, something's wrong with the way that we've been telling the story. Number one, we're not telling the story. Point number two, we are the story or part of the story being told. It's a love story, and we are the beloved. We crucified the plot and made ourselves the plot. Number five, we wrote ourselves out of the story, his story. Number six, he wrote us back into the story, and that's the story, the gospel. Tell that story. It may seem complicated, but it's really quite simple. I think kind of every parent knows it. One particularly day many, many years ago. My daughter, Elizabeth, she was just six years old, and she was having just a really bad day because she was being really mean and ornery to, like, everyone in our house. And finally, I just said, okay, everybody, we're going out to dinner. Everybody, get in the van. You know, pancakes should heal everything. Get in the van. On on the way to the restaurant, Elizabeth was picking fights with everybody. Uh, She was calling her sister and her brothers, all sorts of names. So when we got to the restaurant, I said, okay. Everybody out of the van, into the restaurant, except Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you come up here, and you sit where mommy was sitting in that seat. You, you sit up here with me, and I stared her down. And she stared me down. And then I said, Elizabeth, what's gotten into you? This isn't like you. What's gotten into you? She looked up at me, and she said, Well, I know, but I'm not telling you. I prodded, I poked. Spankings really hadn't done any good in situations like that. She, she was determined to lock her heart away from me deep in the darkness. F- finally, I made her just come sit on my lap and I, I just hugged her for a while. And I could tell the hug burned. She hated it and she loved it. And then she cracked. Through sobs and tears, she said, Daddy, do do you remember when you came to my kindergarten class? Do you remember Kelly? I remembered Kelly. Kelly had like glommed onto my leg and wouldn't let go the whole time that I was there. I said, well, yeah. And then Elizabeth cried, well, Kelly said that you said when you came to my class, that you said to, that you said to her that you said, that you said to her when I wasn't listening, that you said to her that, that, that you loved her and you didn't love me. And then she just sobbed and broke down in tears and convulsions all over my lap. What had gotten into her? A lie from hell. In her sorrow, shame, and fear, she had resolved to write her own story without daddy. She constructed a false self, an independent, bitter, frightened, insecure, and utterly lonely self. And in that place, she was trapped alone, weeping and gnashing her teeth in darkness, six years old and tempted by hell. And my love was judgment on her hell. It burned her pride, And set her free. Six-year-olds, you know, they don't have enough time to construct much of a full self. And so the process was relatively easy. By the time you're 55, (laughs) it can be a lot more complex and painful. And so you guessed it. I looked at Elizabeth and I said, listen to me. If you don't behave in the restaurant, I will no longer love you. I'll set you on fire and send you to hell. Actually, I didn't say that, but (laughs) if I didn't really love her and I only cared about her behavior in the restaurant, I could have said that, and it might have kept her quiet in the restaurant. In the words of Isaiah, she would honor me with her lips, but her heart would be far, far from me. You know, sometimes we pastors really only care about your behavior in the restaurant. that you come to church, and you give to the building program, and you sign up for camp. We care about behavior, and God the Father wants your heart. So actually, I didn't say that to Elizabeth. I just held her a while, and then I said, honey, honey, look at me. Does Kelly have a daddy? And she said, yeah, he has a daddy, but Kelly's daddy and just moved away from Kelly and, and her mommy. And, and so at that, I remember I held Elizabeth's faith and, face and I, and I looked deep in those beautiful big brown eyes and I said, you listen to me. I love you and that will not change. If you doubt my love for you, would you please tell me? Would you please come and tell me that you doubt my love for you? And then I could remind you of my love for you. Because I want you to remember, Elizabeth, I love you. That does not change. It hurts me when you doubt my love for you. You understand? It literally hurts God when you doubt His love for you. And He wants you to remember. He gives everything that your heart would hear and remember. I am your Father who loves you. He speaks His word so that you would know He is love. He speaks His word to create you in the image of love. He speaks His word to tell you who you truly are. To preach the gospel is to proclaim that word. God is salvation. Your Father is salvation. In the movie Blood Diamond, maybe you saw that, rebels raid this village in Sierra Leone, and they, they capture this little boy named Dia. I don't know what that means. It's day in Spanish. They put him to work in the diamond mines and they they train him as a rebel soldier. They brainwash him, telling him that he has no father. And then they make him do terrible things. Well, his father, Solomon, loves Dia and searches long and hard for Dia and finally finds Dia. But Dia has forgotten the plot to his very own story. Dia, what are you doing? Dia! Nyangbe, Nyangbe, what are you doing? Dia of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer, on school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister and her. And did you baby? I always wait for you, Anbawu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. Come home with me and be my son again. so we hold a gun to our father's head. We even pull the trigger and he speaks his word. I am your father who loves you. You will come home with me and be my son again, be my daughter again. I know that they made you do bad things but you are not a bad boy, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He tells us his story, and his story becomes our story. He makes us in his image with his very self. We are the body of Jesus the Christ. And so the word of God in flesh on that night that the entire world betrayed him took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this. Remember me in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. All 12 were sitting at the table and he said, drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. This is the plot to your story. Come to the table, ingest the plot, and live the plot. You are the body of the plot. And in case you ever wonder, what would Jesus do? This is what Jesus does do all the time.